I invite you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 1. We will be looking at chapter 1. However, I'll just be reading verse 10 to 12 to open us. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we turn to this book to study your word, we ask that your spirit would direct our hearts to understand it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we'll begin our series on uh, Esther. We're not necessarily studying the whole book. We're getting lessons from the book of Esther. We'll probably walk through each chapter in that way. But before we look at Esther, let me me give you a little uh, backdrop, back up a little, and then ask you a question, and then we'll give uh, some backdrop. Let me ask this. Why, Why did God give us the Bible? Don't call out, but think about that. Why These 66 books, why are they so important? If you know the catechism, you know it says, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty requires of man. That's why he gave us the Bible. It's to reveal to us who he is, the nature of God, through his attributes and through his deeds, through the stories that we read in the Bible. It teaches us how we're to have a relationship with God. That's why it's given. It instructs us how to worship God. It speaks of life. It speaks of death. It speaks of sin. It speaks of salvation. It speaks of redemption in our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is why we walk through book after book of the Bible, because we want to study the whole counsel of God. Why do we do that? Because we want to know Him, and we want to glorify Him, and we want to enjoy Him forever. That's why we have the Bible. Now, we come to the book of Esther. And the book of Esther may well be the most unusual book in all of the Old Testament in the Bible. In the book of Esther, there's no mention of God. There's no references to salvation. There are no instructions on how to worship God. There's no prayer. There's no miracles. There's no visions or dreams. Nobody cries out to God, and God does not speak to anybody. He doesn't miraculously show up and and supernaturally rescue his people as he does, say, in the Exodus at the Red Sea. Here's the truth. If I were to take this book out of the Bible and you were to run into this book with a different name maybe and you didn't see it and you picked it up off the bookshelf at a library or at a bookstore and you began reading it, you would just conclude it's a secular story about the Jews who are living in a foreign land far away in exile after the exile. Some have returned, but here they are still in exile. It's an interesting story. It's actually an intriguing story, but it's a secular story. God seems completely absent. 
And so as we begin our study of the book of Esther, that fact, that, that truth, the idea that God is not there and He is silent, that He is somehow absent from what these Jews are facing, that is, that is why this book exists. Although unique and strange, it's a book that we can relate to. We can grasp it. We can identify with it. I want you to think about it. When was the last time you were in a difficult situation, struggling with knowing what to do next, and God verbally spoke to you? Literally, not spiritually through His Word, but but an actual voice. When was the last time you found yourself completely at a loss and everything turned your way because God performed a literal, genuine, supernatural miracle? You see, the truth is, by definition, miracles are rare. They were rare in the Bible, and they're rare if not completely absent from our lives, true biblical miracles. We, we carry out, as we carry out our day-to-day activities, as we live our lives, our lives are often read much. One writer said, read much like the book of Esther. We find ourselves living in a culture that doesn't believe as we believe, just like the book of Esther, a culture that calls us to abandon God, a God that we can't see, and seek satisfaction in the things of this world. A world where money and pleasure and power seem to hold the keys to success and happiness. We, we, we live daily thinking that our bosses have more control of our lives than, say, God does. That when someone says about us is more important than what God says about us. We find it difficult as our culture erodes and, and secular thought it, it reigns. And we don't seem to think about what they don't ever seem to think about what God is up to, or we, we don't even know what God is up to. And so we wish that he would just make it easier, that he would show himself, that miracles were more prevalent. I think this is why people like to refer to something that happened in their life as a miracle, um, sometimes when it's not technically a miracle. We, we, we desire that. We want to see, no, 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 here's some proof. Here's some physical proof. We want to see, but not by faith, that our enemy seeks to destroy us. He would, we, we want God to supernaturally intervene so we can point to that event like they could in the Exodus. Now, if you ever had a thought like this, even a little bit, well, then you can relate to the book of Esther. We learn in the book of Esther that all of God's promises to his people are at risk, at least for them on their side of this coin. And for all intents and purposes, as far as the people of God are concerned, God is hiding, he is absent, and he is not there. And so that's, that's, that's what's going on. As we begin our study of Esther, that, that, there's no God in the story, but there is a historical context to this story. And that's where I want to focus first before we go into more detail. What I'm going to do is I, I did some research, and I'm just going to describe basically quoting what I found in the research. I want you to imagine it's a year around 480 B.C., and, and a massive Persian army marches to face the rebel forces of Athens and its Greek allies. And so the Persians are about to go to war against the Greeks. Now, prior to this, there's been some back and forth, and in around 550 B.C., King Darius and the Persians conquered Greece. But then in 490, the Greeks conquered the Persians. 
And so now it's 10 years later, and, and King Darius amasses this great army to seek revenge on the Greeks, but the problem is he dies. And so the quest for vengeance falls to his son. His son is King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes begins his reign in 486 B.C., and after dealing with the threat of Egypt that he had, he, he finishes that, and then in 481, he sets his eyes on attacking the Greeks. But things don't go as planned. They do sack the city, and they do win some battles, but finally they are defeated by none other than Alexander the Great. And see, I give that little history lesson on King Xerxes because King Xerxes is the same person you read about in Esther here named Ahasuerus. And I'm going to keep calling him Xerxes because I can't pronounce Ahasuerus. <laughs> the man who conquered Egypt and then set out to conquer Greece with a quarter or a million soldiers. That is the man whose heart must be won in order to save the Jews from extinction there. This is who this shy Jewish girl named Esther must confront. That is that king. That's the historical context. That's the setting of this story. And Xerxes, again, going to use his Greek name, we're told in verse 1, reigned from India to Ethiopia. He reigned over 127 provinces and sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. That's verse 1. In verse 3, we're told that in the third year of his reign, that's, that makes it about 483 B.C., two years prior to going to war with the Greeks, he gives this feast for all his officials and servants. Now, this feast of this powerful king is a big party, officially it's an assembly of his war council in order to plan his campaign against the Greeks that we just learned that he loses. But, but at this point, he's, he's bringing them together, and, and this feast was likely designed to raise support for his invasion of Athens. And so after a couple of years of consolidating his empire, and he, he conquers Egypt, and he brings all his officials and servants together, and they have a six-month summit. However, the focus of our text, because remember, our Bible is historical. This actually happened. It's historical. But it doesn't give all the details because it's relaying the history that relates to God's progressive revelation. The focus of our text is on the party. It's on this feast. And what the text does, it lays out for us how rich this man is, how impressive King Xerxes is, how amazing it would be to actually be in King Xerxes' presence. The verse 4 here tells us it took 180 days to show his royal glory and splendor and pomp and greatness to the people. I mean, think of any rich person in the world today, and they're a pulper compared. 180 days to parade all his wealth. And in case they weren't, they weren't impressed with that, he gives another feast, a seven-day feast, says verse 5, and this time it's for everyone, both great and small. The entire city is invited. Now, this is the book of the Bible. So doesn't it seem strange that so much emphasis is on, let, let's open up the book and talk about how impressive this rich man is. I mean, that, that's what you have here. Look at verse 6 and 7. There were white cotton curtains and 
violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of poor, free marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. You ever notice no one ever has that verse hanging up in their house? <laughs> it's just as much Scripture as all the other verses. And, and what, what we have here is the king was so rich that he took jewels, which other leaders would have had in a safe in the royal treasury. He takes them and makes them part of his decor. He has pearls and diamonds. They were built into the floor so that the floor sparkled when the light came on or when the light was shining on it from the sun. Couchers were made of gold and silver. And verse 7 Their drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. This man was impressive, and he was really rich. You know, at the time of Esther's story, one writer points out, the Jewish temples burned, the the tabernacles long gone. And for the Jews here in Persia, there were, there, there were state-sponsored pagan temples all around them. And so the God of Israel is seemingly nowhere to be found. You see, the goal of the king and the Persian officials was to assimilate the people from foreign lands into this single entity. They wanted everyone to settle in into a comfortable lifestyle. Yeah, these Jews were in exile, away from their homeland, but the exile had, had been kind to them. Um, it had been some 50 years since Cyrus gave the decree to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem, and yet these Jews did not return. They are in Persia and now are tempted to kind of just settle in. They, let's not make any waves, that, to become part of the crowd and, and reap the benefits of this pagan lifestyle. That, you know, no harm, no foul. We ruffle no feathers. We'll just enjoy the show, and that's what the king offered. He offered this spectacular show of glorious wealth and endless pleasure. And so the glory of God is gone, but the glory of Xerxes reigns over the land. And see, King Xerxes, he doesn't only love wealth and pleasure. Look at verse 8. He loves power. And drinking was according to his edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Everything's under his control. He literally makes an edict on how much people can drink. Now, he he says they can drink at no compulsion. They they could do as much as they desire, drink as much or as little as you wanted. But it was an edict nonetheless. He's so power-hungry that drinking at his party had to conform to his law. Now, the point of this story this far is actually, even though as Christians we, we, we don't take the, the bait, but it, it's to produce in us this hunger to have this lifestyle. I mean, it's presenting, this is amazing. What, what, what the world wants from you is to make your purpose in life to be like this king. That's the message that America brings. And, 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 and it's the message it proclaims. That's what the uh, message of our entertainment culture proclaims. Think of how when uh, you may have seen these YouTube things where, you know, somebody is talking about their favorite movie star and the movie star comes in from behind and, and, and says hello. What happens to these people? They follow, they're just amazed. They're in their presence. And, and we think, well, that's 
ridiculous. But, but people love that. Their favorite sports person, their favorite personality, whoever it is. That's what our entertainment culture is saying. Don't you wish you were them? We're, we're fascinated with the lifestyles of the rich and famous. You may say, well, I'm not, but there's enough uh, people that are that they have magazines and TV shows and books and everything just about them. Our culture preaches every day to seek those things if you want to fulfill your life. If you want to pursue happiness and fulfill the pursuit of happiness, you need to have those things. And, and you're often left with the impression, well, why not? God seems absent. Look how good they have it. Why can't I have it? Wouldn't it be nice not to struggle with bills? Wouldn't it be nice if life was just a party all the time? Wouldn't it be nice if you held the power for a change? And, and, and so that's what this chapter is, is presenting to us, that lifestyle. But the story doesn't end there. We know that. The story goes on, and we'll see that truth and uh, all these things behind the facade eventually. We read in verse 10, though, that on the last day of the feast, the king is drunk. And he commands his servants to go get his wife, Queen Vashti, with her royal crown. And he does this. Because just in case they weren't impressed with the last 187 days, they, they will surely be impressed with his trophy wife. Look at verse 12. He did this in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And so he gets his wife. She's an object existing for her, his pleasure. She was to be the icing on the cake of the last six months. And then everything falls apart. Why? Because Queen Vashti refuses to come. We learned earlier in verse 9 that she's having a party of her own in, in the palace. Uh, 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 the palace that's owned by the king. And, and when he get, she gets word that he wants her to leave her party and come to his party, she says, no. Now, this is meant to startle you. One writer says, this should just blow you away. This does not happen. You've got to understand the context. This is amazing because that isn't how queens were to respond. The king owned her, period. He owned her. He could do with her as he pleased. And to refuse the king would result in the death sentence. And yet she says no. Why? Well, she sees behind the curtain as it were. She isn't fooled by his status. She's not impressed with his gold and silver. For 187 days, the king has been seeking to impress everyone with how rich and powerful he is. And we just read how amazing it would have been. But as the feast comes to a close, there's only one thing they're all going to remember. His wife refused his command. He may control this vast territory from India to Ethiopia, but he can't even control his wife. Now, one writer pointed out, a mere woman stood up and said no, and the empire was powerless to enforce its will. The mouse has roared, and the glorious empire was shaken to its foundation by her refusal. And so, verse 12 tells us, he is filled with rage and anger. The richest most powerful man in the world, at least until he meets Alexander the Great, but the richest and most powerful man in the world who has everything you could ever wish for comes to the end of this massive showing-off party, and he's angry. 
he's angry. Now, anger and rage for King Xerxes would have been no surprise for the people. Let me give you a little history lesson. We read in history that when he was looking eventually to go to war with Greece, remember his army, he was moving his army, he built a bridge. And it was to cross over this small area of water between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Well, what happened is a storm destroyed the bridge. And Xerxes was furious with his engineers who built the bridge and allowed a storm to destroy it that he chopped off all their heads. And then, that isn't enough, he was also furious with the water which destroyed his bridge, and so he sends his soldiers into the water with whips demanding that they lash the ocean 300 times for its insubordination. (laughs) Well, in our text... He's furious with his wife's insubordination, and so something has to be done about it. What is to be done? How how is this man who's angry and furious to respond? Well, as we read on, we learn that instead of learning that he probably shouldn't treat his wife like an object or treat his wife like the ocean, he makes it a matter of national security. He calls his advisors and wise men together, and they ask, picking up in verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of the king delivered by the eunuchs. Well, one of the advisors decides he's going to speak up. That's verse 16, beginning there. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say to the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. He's saying, look, don't you understand what's happening here? This woman rebels, and now all the women are going to rebel. We're going to lose control. All the officials' wives will start thinking they have a right to say no. And so verse 19, here's their advice. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the king. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom for its vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. And so didn't you know that, ladies? If I just make a command... You're, you're, you're going to have to listen now. We can't have this chaos with the women, so the only answer is punish the queen. Banish her. If we don't do that, we'll be able to keep, we won't be able to keep subjecting our own wives to our whims. And so the answer, just make a law, and all the wives will just honor their husbands all of a sudden. Do you see what's happening here, why we're being told all this? See, it, again, it just seems strange. This is a Bible book. It's not just a story, it's a true story, but it's in the Bible. The author wants you to see that despite all the king's wealth, all his power, all his splendor, he's a weak and petty man. Think about this. How could this law work? I mean, are all the men just going to treat their wives like Xerxes did and expect that they will be honored because there was a law made? I won't go into the husband and wives thing now. Uh, and when they disobey, 
or we're just going to banish all the women now. I mean, it's just silly, and, and, and it's dumb, and that's why it's included. And more than that, think about it this way. How many people do you think knew when the eunuchs came back and said, she said no? How many people actually knew that happened? I mean, there was a group, and rumors would have spread, right? We know that that would have gotten out. But this law guaranteed everybody knew. I mean, it was literally written in the law. You know, his wife didn't listen to him, so now you guys better all listen. And the law was to banish the queen from the king's presence. It's exactly what she wanted. Now, I'm sure it didn't go well for her. But I'm just saying, you're going to punish her by telling her she can't come near you. Well, she didn't want to come near you in the first place. The idea is that it's foolish. The law is crazy. And yet, the king hears that suggestion, and he follows through. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. And now, the idea here is it's meant to make us laugh. See, the king isn't meant to be seen as this amazing person to be admired and emulated. He's a clown meant to be laughed at. That's the land these Jews find themselves in. Ruled by a power-hungry, egotistical, prideful man who has serious anger issues and lacks true wisdom. And, and, And the truth is the author shares this part of the story is actual background, if you know anything about Esther, why that part of the story is important to be in there. Uh, But it still kind of makes you laugh when you think about it. But the heart of the story that we're going to consider in a few weeks will fall back on the importance of this. But I I said that what what, what I'd like to do is have some life lessons here from the book, and I'm just going to give two today. The first is, this one should be obvious. It should be obvious with everything we just read. It should be obvious from studying Ecclesiastes. But a life lived with the pursuit of wealth and pleasure and power is a wasted life. It's a wasted life. One writer puts it this way. Chapter 1 reminds us to not take the power and glory of the world too seriously. The things of this world are fading away. And so do you really think that more money will bring you comfort, that more power will make you be at peace, that more pleasure will satisfy your soul? It's all fading. And the answer is no, it will not. See, the world and its kingdom makes promises it just can't keep. I mean, those same celebrities that people fall down and fawn over, lives are just a mess. They're a wreck, not all of them. And just because you have money doesn't mean you're going to be a wreck. But, but the point is, if that was the pursuit in their lives, they would t- most, a lot of them would say, I'd turn it all in just to have peace. Uh, the truth is our world is not much different than Persia. That's the reality. It wants us to dream of a six-month-long party and, and then devote our lives to pursuing that dream. And so the chapter serves, at least in this lesson, as a warning It's a warning. Don't fall for it. Oh, it's tempting. It's very tempting. Don't listen to its siren call. See, the answer is to do what? It's to say, I need to go beyond this petty pleasure. I need to go beyond this, the, the, the material wealth and seek a greater kingdom and seek a greater king, which is the second application. See, Esther chapter 1 shows us that God's kingdom is not like the kingdom of Xerxes. Remember, this is not simply a story. 
It is a historical event. It happened, but it's not just a historical event. It's in the Bible on purpose. And what it does is it invites us to compare and to contrast the, the kingdom of, uh, of Persia or the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of God. There's some comparisons. The kingdom of God and King Jesus is a great king whose decrees, like King Xerxes, cannot be challenged or repealed. Once he made that decree, it had to be followed. Uh, And like King Xerxes attempted, King Jesus governs all things, both great and small. And like King Xerxes, King Jesus must be obeyed or we're going to suffer the consequences when he returns like Vashti suffered. But, the, but, but you, you know, the, these comparisons are surface only. There's much more to be found in the contrast. The truth is God's laws are meant for our benefit, unlike Xerxes' selfish laws, which only benefit himself, and in this case, all the men. One writer has said, King Jesus doesn't use people for his own purposes as if they were disposable commodities. Rather, he graciously invites them into a loving relationship with himself. And consider some of the other contrast. Uh, The kingdom of Xerxes trusts the power of the sword. The kingdom of God trusts the power of the cross. The kingdom of Xerxes believes power and wealth make you strong. The kingdom of God teaches that grace and weakness make you strong. The kingdom of Xerxes exercises its influence how? Through command, through fear. The kingdom of God exercises its influence through love. The kingdom of Xerxes seeks to control behavior. The kingdom of God seeks to transform lives from the inside out that produces the kingdom's behavior. They're just some of the contrasts between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. What about the king? Is there a difference? Well, of course there is. I'll close with this. See, King Xerxes sent servants to retrieve his bride. King Jesus left the kingdom of heaven came to earth, took on flesh, and came to call us as his bride himself. See, King Xerxes saw his beautiful bride as an object that only existed for his pleasure. She was indeed beautiful. King Jesus sees his unattractive bride, dies for her to make her beautiful. And while King Xerxes punished and banished all who disobeyed him, King Jesus takes upon himself the punishment of his people, promising never to forsake them. Do you, do you hear that? Our king, our king takes the punishment for us. Hebrews 13 tells us, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He took our banishment. He went outside the gate like Vashti got banished. He he died our death. He was forsaken by the Father so God wouldn't turn us away. And now, now this same king, like King Xerxes, but King Jesus invites us to a banquet. A banquet much, much greater than the banquet of King Xerxes. We read about it in Isaiah. We also read about it in Revelation. Let me read to you from Isaiah 25. We read, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, 
of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. You see, the the world that we live in has a lot of amazing things that can offer us. And you saw them all in chapter 1, and you, you see them every day in America. But see, like Isaiah says, there is a veil of death that is cast over all of us, making it impossible for us to enjoy those pleasures. They will never last. They're, it's always out of our reach. We always need more. But our king, King Jesus, has done what? He has swallowed up death forever. And so Vashti rejected her king. You can understand why. But your king is nothing like King Xerxes. Jesus is nothing like him. His love and glory and power and wisdom and splendor is eternal. Scripture says he is altogether lovely. He's filled with mercy, and he's filled with grace, and he's filled with love, and he's filled with compassion. And so there is nothing noble about rejecting Jesus. And know this, the the power that Xerxes had pales in the comparison to King Jesus who created the earth. And, 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 And his judgments will come someday. He will return. And he will judge all who have not come to him. And, 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 and see, but now he invites us by his love. So don't resist his will. Why be banished from the king's presence when, when infinite joy and, and infinite love and, and, and eternal pleasure awaits all who will come to him and bow their knee? See, that's our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do admit that the things of this world are very appealing at times. And often, living for you, we may even think at times doesn't seem worth it. And yet we know that's a lie from the pit of hell. And so we ask, Lord, that your spirit would work in our hearts, that that we would desire your kingdom and desire our king and to live for him. In Jesus' name, amen.